The following audio presentation is from Parkwood Baptist Church. The purpose of Parkwood Baptist Church is to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. More information about Parkwood Baptist Church is available at parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org. Good morning, church. It's good to be with you. My name is Casey Shaw. It's a joy to serve as pastoral associate here at Parkwood. I was not supposed to preach this morning at the 11 o'clock service, the 9.30 service, and the 8 service. Uh, I was supposed to only preach at the 8 a.m., but Pastor Jeff texted me last night to be a point of prayer that he smoothly arrives home. Uh, But he is stuck in New York uh, on his way back from Several of our church members, staff members, were doing a conference in Europe for some of our workers there. Uh, had a great trip. Pastor Jeff wanted to get back early to be with you this morning, but unfortunately was stuck at the airport last night. So not a good place to be. So he does say, hey, he does wish to be with you. But we're still going to dive into the Word together this morning. And so if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at the first seven verses there. If you don't have a Bible, you didn't bring one with you, there's a Bible in the chair near you. That It's on page 974. If you don't own a Bible, feel free to take that. It's yours from us. I'd ask if you would stand as we read God's Word together this morning. Paul writes, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I pray that you would cause us to comprehend the reality of being able to call you Father as your redeemed children God, give us joy together as your people this morning. Stir our hearts. Fill us, fill our minds with clarity and our hearts with affections for you. Fill us with all of the reality that we are sons and daughters of the King of kings and Lord of lords. Speak to us now, I pray in Jesus' name. You can be seated. There's two identities in this passage this morning, that of a slave or a son. Two identities in this room, slavery, sonship. Slavery are those who are trusting in themselves in this passage. And sons are those who are recipients of the highest privilege imaginable by simply trusting Christ alone. And so the main point that we want to understand this morning is that those who trust in Christ alone, by faith alone, are no longer slaves, 
but our sons. And so I want us to consider this reality this morning is that you are either totally a slave or you are totally a son. There are no such thing as obedient slaves that are okay in the family of God. And there are no such things as partial sons in the family of God. You are totally a slave or totally a son. Your identity this morning is either determined by you because of what you're enslaved to or your identity is determined by God and who he says you are in Jesus. One of two. So the question that I wanna be at the forefront of our minds as we unpack this passage this morning is who are you? Who are you? We're gonna return to that question at the end, but think on that as we unpack Paul's paragraph here. First thing I want us to see is that God sent his son to those who were slaves under the law. Verses one through three. I mean that the heir, that's the language that he's using, picking up from chapter three, the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. So in verses one and two, Paul's using an illustration. The picture that he's drawing here is of a boy in a home of wealth and standing who is legally the heir and so the master of the family estate, but he's still a minor And so he lives under rules very much like a slave. And in verse two, guardians and managers that are referred to, they control the property and the finances of this minor, basically depriving him of all independent action so that in reality, his liberty is reduced to that of a slave. This is the picture that you have in verses one and two, the illustration that Paul then uses to describe or to compared to the state of Christians in Galatia and Christians, all Christians for that matter, including us here today. Before we knew Christ, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. That is true of every single Christian in this room. Before we knew Christ, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And that is, to be clear, that is true, the Bible teaches of everyone who currently does not belong to Jesus Christ, enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. So what does Paul mean by that phrase, elementary principles of the world? Now there's some debate as to exactly what that means. Paul could mean the law. Just in context of chapter three, he's talking about the law a lot. And I think that he does mean that, he does intend that, but not only that. I think it is likely that Paul means the basic moralism of our world, which our world elevates to the place of God. These are perhaps good principles, good things, but we elevate them to the place of life-giving principles and good things. Now, principles aren't bad, and the law isn't bad as we saw last week, but God never intended to save us with a to-do list. It was never his intention. Just as a search, I, uh, I wanted to know, uh, I, I typed in self-help books in the Amazon search bar and you would be shocked as to how many results popped up. 750,283 results pop up in the self-help section of the Amazon bookstore. 
just kind of silly, but the desire for principles and thoughts that will make us happy are limitless. Someone is constantly coming out with new elementary principles. If you just have this, you will be happy. If you just do this, you will have fulfillment. If you just apply this to your life, you will have worth. And you can fill in the blank of what you're prone to. If I just had this, if I just do this, if you just put these things into place in your life, it'll be good. You'll be happy. You'll be satisfied. You'll have worth. Maybe you're, maybe you're an evangelist for those particular principles. We're particularly in a season where those principles are applied regularly as people make New Year's resolutions. If I, just, if I just go to the gym more, eat less donuts, while those are good things to apply to our lives, they are not life-saving principles. And Paul is saying here that before Christ, we were enslaved to things, even good things, that we elevated to the place of God in our lives. We were enslaved to things, even good things, that we thought would bring us happiness. We were enslaved to things, even good things, that we thought would bring us fulfillment. We were enslaved to things, even good things, that we thought would bring us worth. Tim Keller said, if anything but Jesus is a requirement for being happy or worthy, that thing will become our slave master. Even a very good thing. Set up to the standard of I must do this, I must have this. Anything but Jesus is a slave master in that regard. I think further here, it's not particularly clear in Paul's argument about this phrase, but I think we could go so far to say that Satan himself uses the to-do list of the law and the to-do list of our world, and he subtly whispers in our ears, if you want happiness and fulfillment and worth, then keep this, then do this. It goes all the way back to the garden and how he subtly deceives and the minute we violate that to-do list, Satan drives us to absolute despair. Or on the good days when we keep the to-do list, he puffs us up with arrogance that separates us from the heart of God. This is a dire situation that we find ourselves in outside of Christ. Ephesians 2 unpacks this. If you wanna just turn a page or two over in your Bible to Ephesians chapter two, Paul describes this more fully here in detail, our situation outside of belonging to Jesus by faith. He says, Ephesians 2, one through three, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is bad, bad news. This is a bad place to be. Our state outside of Christ is one of deadness, disobedience, depravity, and damnation. That is our existence outside of a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That is who we are. And you might say, well, that's bad news. Why harp on this bad news? This is all you Christians talk about. Or maybe you're a Christian and you're like, this, enough of the bad stuff. 
But the gospel is all the more sweet because we consider who we were. Because we consider our desperate state outside of saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. It makes the next phrase all the more sweet. Verse four and five. But when the fullness of time had come, something new has happened here. God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. We are enslaved and God doesn't give us a new to-do list. In fact, God says, you've, you've messed up so miserably. We're just gonna change the subject here. And God enters into the course of human history. God, second point, sent his son to redeem us so that we might be adopted as children of God. I want us to notice first that God sent his son. God sent his son. We're gonna come back to that idea of sent because he uses it again. But basically, he, at the right time, at the right time, God sent his son. God in his sovereignty was designing all of human history for this moment in time. It was a divine appointment. That is what Christmas is, a divine appointment by God that was designed by, from all eternity past that the Lamb of God would come and step onto the course of human history and be the sufficient sacrifice for sinners like us. That's what Christmas is. God sent his son, notice second, the nature of the coming of the son. It says he was born of woman, born under the law. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. The king of kings came as one of the most poor and vulnerable beings on the planet. My wife and I have a nine-month-old. And if you've ever held a baby and thought, God became one of these. If you've ever been in the ultrasound room and watched the little fingers move, the little motion of, of, the, of the baby, of the life inside the womb of this woman and think God became one of those. God became a dependent, vulnerable infant in the womb of his mother, all the while, Hebrews 1, upholding the universe by the word of his power. That is remarkable. The king of kings stepped on the course of human history, not in royalty, but in a feeding trough for farm animals, born of woman. In other words, Jesus is fully God and fully man. Jesus is truly God and truly man. Now, why does this matter? We say this phrase all the time. Why did it, why did it have to be like this? Well, this is the best definition I've heard so far. William Hendrickson comments, in order to save us, Jesus Christ had to be in one person, both God and human. He had to be God in order to give his sacrifice infinite value, to deliver us out of the realm of darkness and to transplant us into the realm of everlasting life. And he had to be human because since it was man who sinned, it was also man who must bear the penalty for sin and render his life to God in perfect Obedience. God was born of woman, fully God, fully man, but he's also born under the law, meaning that Jesus was born just like you and me with an obligation to keep the law of God. But he kept it perfectly. He did not fail. He was uniquely 
able to redeem us and save us under the law because he kept the law of God. Everything the law said don't do, he didn't do. Everything the law said do, he did. He was blameless in thought, in action, in word, perfectly spotless. Absolute perfection is the image of Jesus. That is who he is. He's not only the sacrifice in our place, but he is the great law keeper in our place. He was totally perfect. And notice third here, the purpose of God in the sending of the son. Jesus came to redeem slaves and make us sons. He didn't stop with mere redemption, but he went further to make us sons. Paul describes this in a couple places in a little more detail. In Galatians 1, 4 and Galatians 3, 13, I'll read those for you. Galatians 1, 4 says, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, for, for the purpose of delivering us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. And you flip over to Galatians 3.13, we see that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. In other words, let me sum it up this way. Jesus obeyed the law of God for us and Jesus endured the wrath of God instead of us. That is the glorious news of the gospel. But I want us to consider further a few more things. Consider why we're slaves. Why are we slaves? Now, we often see a group of people perhaps enslaved and we feel sorry, we feel pity, we we don't want that. And that's right. It's good. But God did not look at our state of slavery and he was not compelled because he felt sorry for our situation. We made ourselves slaves. We enslaved ourselves by our rejection of God. We had it all. You read Genesis 1 and 2 and it's like, why on earth, Adam and Eve, would you give this up for a piece of fruit? Seriously, can you imagine a perfect marriage, perfect job, perfect relationship, walking, communing with God daily? That fruit looks pretty good. We had it all. We're no different from them. We rejected God and we settled instead for his stuff. And instead of God responding by rejecting us, this is the good news. He responds by redeeming us from our slavery to sin through the rejection and resurrection of his son. Instead of rejecting us, Jesus comes as the God man, rejected by sinful mankind and on the cross, rejected by his own father. When he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the wrath of God is poured out on God, the son for our sins, not his, but the grave could not hold him. And three days later, he rose again, conquering sin and death, our greatest enemies. And he now today reigns victorious. We were slaves and God went to great lengths. Consider that he's made us sons. Us. We were not cute orphan children 
enslaved outside of our own desire and will. That was not our situation. We, again, chose to be slaves to our own passions and efforts by rejecting God. He crushed his only son to make us his sons. This kind of love just compels us to ask the question, how on earth, how can this be? Why? I'm reminded of Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3 when he prays for the church at Ephesus. They would have strength to comprehend what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge that they may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul prays, I pray that you would understand the love of Christ. You can't understand it because it is so full. It is so, so deep. It is so wide. It is beyond our comprehension. And if you think about it long enough, you get a headache because it goes well beyond our comprehension. But praise God for that kind of headache to dwell on the amazing love of God for us in Christ. We must not ever question God's goodness in the fact that he only gave one way into his family. In fact, we should marvel at the reality that he even made a way into his family for slaves like us, for slaves like us. But it's not over. The good news just keeps coming in this passage, verses six and seven. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son, another sending into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. The second sending is God sent the spirit so that we might enjoy the privileges of being children of God. God sent the son and then God sent the spirit. I want us to first focus on that word sent. He sent the Spirit. Paul parallels God's sending of the Spirit with the sending of the Son. This is actually the only two places where Paul uses this particular verb for sent. God sent his Son to accomplish our sonship, and God sent his Spirit to assure us of our sonship. The two are equally real and are equally important. Just a few observations with this intentional sending language. God is a sending God. It's who he is. What if God had not sent? What if God, sufficient in and of himself, left us in our state of deadness, disobedience, depravity, and damnation, never sent anyone. We would do like we're, what we're prone to do. We would try to work work our way to God and earn his approval, but there would be no success in that. What if the son had stayed? What if the spirit had stayed? Slaves would still be slaves. We would not be here today celebrating the goodness of Jesus Christ. We would be without hope in this world. This is a side note because God is still in the business of sending. Where is God sending you? So that current slaves can be made into sons by the grace of God. Where is God sending you? Because God has sent his son. God has sent the spirit of his son and God now sends his children 
equipped with his spirit into this world of slavery so that more sons can come into the family? Where is God sending you so that more can be welcomed at the table? Maybe it's across the ocean. As some brothers and sisters in the room are about to go in a few weeks to people who never heard. Maybe it's next door to that neighbor you've been praying for 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 many years. Maybe it's the cubicle across the hall. Maybe it's your person you see come and sit in the balcony or down here every week and you're concerned that they don't know Jesus, but they're here and they're searching and they don't know what they're searching for. And after the service, they just need a child of God to come say, come to the family and be forgiven of all you've ever done. Where is God sending you? And what if you stay? What if you don't go? God has gone to great lengths to make slaves into sons. God is deeply concerned with the redemption, adoption, and care of his children. He is deeply concerned with this far more than we are. He is more concerned with our care as his children than we are. Notice second, that the spirit assures us of our sonship. Look at Romans chapter eight. Flip to the left with me, Romans chapter eight. Paul just explains this with such clarity. We just need to go here and see what he says. Romans eight, verses 15 through 17, Paul explains it so well. He says, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are in fact children of God. And if we're children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified in him. I want us to see here who the Spirit is sent to. He says, because you are sons. Because you are sons. I want us to stop at that phrase, you are sons. I was overwhelmed just thinking about these verses. And I don't know about you, but I sometimes feel like a partial son of God because of my lack of obedience and my constant mess ups. I don't know if you can identify with that. It's just, today I feel like a son, but tomorrow is a different story. God says, because you are sons, by faith in Jesus Christ, you are a full adopted son of God, total son. Nothing left to be accomplished. Jesus has done it all. We cling to him by faith and you are sons. He says in verse seven, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. God says that to you. Those of you here today that belong to Jesus and are united to him by faith alone, God says to you, you're a son, you're a child, you're a daughter. There's nothing left for you to do to impress him, to bring you into the family. It's accomplished. It's done. I was having a conversation with an adoptive family in the congregation a few days ago, and, and, and someone actually said this to them in the presence of their adopted children, said, is their real mom dead? 
To which he replied, no, she's standing right here. This is the real mom. We've adopted these children into our family and we are the real parents and they are our real children. And God says the same thing to us today. Those of us who are united to him by faith in Christ, they're my real children. They don't sleep out back. They're not in a sleeping bag on the floor. We didn't blow up an air mattress for these kids. They have their place in our family at the table, full and complete privileges that Jesus himself has. That is good news, friends. John Stott says, it is because you are sons that God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. There is no other qualification needed. There's no need for us to recite some formula or strive after some experience or fulfill any extra condition. Question, do you belong to Jesus? If so, you're a son, you're a daughter. In the most secure family imaginable. Look further at where the spirit is sent to. We've seen who, but where, he says, into our hearts. Now, a couple of things we wanna consider here. The spirit is God. He is not some sidebar to God. He's not lesser God. He is fully God, just like God the Father is fully God and God the Son is fully God. The Holy Spirit is fully God and he is sent into our hearts. Our dead, disobedient depraved and ultimately doomed hearts. We didn't clean our act up so that God would enter into and take up residence within us. No, he, he saves us and he takes up residence in the hearts of slaves and we become sons. Ezekiel 36, God saying, giving us this picture of what God would do. Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27 says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Notice the order. We don't obey to become sons and receive the spirit. No, because we are sons, we receive the spirit of God and then we obey, empowered by the spirit of God dwelling in us. Not to earn the favor of God, but because we already have it in Christ. That is so good. God has done a great work in you if you are a child of God. The spirit of God himself has taken up residence in us. And he assures our hearts that we are indeed sons. And he enables our obedience further though. The spirit enables the intimacy of sonship. He sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. This is a good quote. The Holy Spirit is the sign and pledge of our adoption so that by his presence in our hearts, we are truly convinced that God is for us and he is not against us, that indeed he is our heavenly father. The evidence Paul gave for this wonderful assurance is not that through the spirit we are empowered to do miraculous works, receive ecstatic visions, speak in tongues or any other kind of sensational phenomena. Rather the first most basic indication of our adoption is that we have a new form of address for God. The Spirit invites us to join in his invocation, crying, Abba, 
Father. We might not feel the weight of that phrase and the ability and privilege that we have to call God, holy God, Abba, Father. When in the Old Testament, they would tie a rope around the high priest as he entered into the presence of God and hope he wouldn't die. We now can confidently approach the throne of grace. We get the picture that we can crawl up in the lap of God and be honest about who we are and our failures and our sins and our struggles, and he won't cast us off. He welcomes us in as a gracious father, and we are enabled to cry out to him in childlike dependence. As honest, humble, confident children in the secure arms of a loving and gracious God. So what does this phrase mean, Abba, Father? We've, we've kind of made too much of it, I think, in our culture, but it is a really, really sweet phrase. Timothy George defines it well. He says, as a word of address, Abba is not so much associated with infancy as baby talk. Rather, it's, it's associated with intimacy. It's a cry of the heart. It's not a word spoken calmly with personal detachment and reserve. It's a word that we call or cry out. My question is, do we think of God like this? Do you think of God like this, in this manner? What do you make of the thought that God is Father and we can be his children? J.I. Packer said, you find out a lot about a person and how, they, how well they understand Christianity by what they make of the thought that God is Father. John Piper said this, and this is, this is discouraging, and I fear that this may be the state of, of, of many churchgoers in, in our culture today. He said, for many, Christianity has become the grinding out of general doctrinal laws from collections of biblical facts, but childlike wonder and awe have died. The scenery and poetry and music of the majesty of God have dried up like a forgotten peach at the back of the refrigerator. Do you view your relationship with God as, as one with intimacy or apathy? We are welcomed into an intimate family into an intimate relationship with a loving God. He is not to be enjoyed with apathy. In fact, I don't even know how you can do that. We are to know deep and meaningful intimacy with God as Father. Do you know him like that? I pray that the Holy Spirit will fill our hearts with childlike awe for our Father in heaven who so loved us that he gave his only son to make us slaves into sons. I pray that we would know the intensity of that love and that we would feel the affection of our Father's heart. So what? Am I enslaved to sin or am I a child of God by faith alone in Christ alone? I want to ask it this way. Who are you? 
Back to our earlier question, who are you? We said at the beginning, you're either totally a slave or totally a son. But I think there are some categories within even those two identifications. And here's four categories I see potentially in this room. Maybe you're a disobedient slave. You're looking for happiness and fulfillment and joy all the while running as far from God as you can. You think that you're free, but you're enslaved to your freedom. You think that your life, free from God, is a life that's free. But you couldn't be farther from the truth. Your freedom is only confined to the temporary satisfaction that your sin can bring you. My encouragement, my plea to you would be to look to Christ who alone sets free. Embrace him by faith alone and receive the highest privilege imaginable. Freedom as a child of God. There is no freedom like freedom in Christ Jesus who frees us to be who we were truly made to be, children of God, not free to roam about and indulge in any sin we can imagine or fathom, but free to obey the King. There is no joy and no freedom outside of the family of God. Maybe you're in the second category. You're a working slave. You're a slave working for the favor of God. Alan Jackson, the great country musician, the terrible theologian, wrote a song that I like. I like country music a lot. Where I come from, he wrote it a while back. But I like the song because it's like, you know, it's a good old boy kind of song, you know. Reminds you of the good old days. It's one you'd crank up in the truck. And then he gets to this terrible line, ruins the song. Working hard to get to heaven where I come from. I'm like, Alan, why did you have to ruin it? This is the working slave. Working hard to get to heaven. You're looking for happiness and fulfillment and joy and trying to earn God's approval. My question for you, if this is you, are you not exhausted? This was me for a long time. And it was the most tired I've ever been in my entire life. Working hard to get to heaven. Jesus says to you, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest, rest for your soul. There is rest in the family of God. Embrace Jesus by faith alone and you will have rest. He said, it's finished. Third category, and, and my guess is that many of us in the room have this struggle. I know that I do. You're an enslaved son. You're a son, but you're living like a slave. You're prone to wander back into the elementary principles of this world. You're like the Galatians. You begin by the spirit, but now you're trying to be perfected by your own works and earn the approval of God. Brother or sister, children don't need to earn the approval of their father. Let me step back. Maybe you do, or maybe you had to earn the approval of your father. 
Maybe you had to perform certain deeds to win the affection and attention of your father. And if, if that's the case, I just want you to know that that is no indication of how God operates in his family. God does not operate like that in his home with his children. The, th- the same thing that God said, the father said to Jesus is true of those of us who are clinging to Jesus alone by faith. He says to Jesus, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. God says that to you, to those of us who are clinging to Christ alone by faith alone. You're my child and I'm pleased with you. As we are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the father takes full pleasure in who we are. He loves you, he is for you, he is not against you, he does not leave you, he does not forsake you. He is 100% committed to those of us who belong to Jesus. Fourth category, and this is my prayer that we would all enjoy this. Adopted children happily seated at the father's table. This is, this is beyond our comprehension. Tim Keller said in the gospel, we discover that Jesus has taken us off death row. And then he's hung around our neck, the congressional medal of honor. And we are received and welcomed as heroes as if we had performed extraordinary deeds. And we know that those deeds were performed by Jesus Christ in our place. And he took the curse that we actually deserved. And not only do we receive the Congressional Medal of Honor, so to speak, but God steps in as judge. He steps off the bench and he takes us by the hand and he brings us home into his own family and he seats us at his own table and we get to enjoy and commune with God for all eternity as his 100% total children. That is who you are in Christ Jesus. That is not who we will be. That is who we are by faith in Christ alone. I'm going to read and then pray Ephesians 2. In a room this size, we all have stories of how God's grace has changed us, how he saved us, but all of our stories are basically Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. We just might say it in little different words. God might have used unique things in your life, if you're not in the family of God, you're still a slave, we want you to know that we don't have it all together, that sons aren't perfect practically. We are imperfect people being made, being perfected by a loving and gracious God. We are no different than the rest of the world. We just love Jesus and we know that he is faithful to shape us and mold us and change us by his grace. And so we want, as as the people of God, we want to just, just enjoy our story together. But if you're not in the family, 
I pray that you would be compelled by our story of who God is and what he does and that you be brought into this story. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, and, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince, the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like everybody else. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we were slaves, he made us alive. He made us sons together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, he might demonstrate the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith and we had nothing to do with it. It is the gift of God, not a result of anything we did or can do so that no one, not one of us in this room can boast because we're his workmanship. We are his sons created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is our story. This is what God has done to take slaves and make us sons. And we get to enjoy the privileges of that forever. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would impress upon our hearts more fully than ever before the privilege of calling you Father the privilege of boldly approaching the throne of grace as your children that you love, that you are pleased with, not because of a righteousness of ourselves, but because of the righteousness that we receive by clinging to Christ alone, who is our Savior, who is our Lord, who is our everything. And so God, may we rest in the family of God because our position as sons is totally up to you and we are totally secure in your house, in your family, as your sons and as your daughters. May we enjoy this together, I pray in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to this audio presentation from Parkwood Baptist Church, located in Gastonia, North Carolina. Please feel free to share this message with others. For more information about Parkwood Baptist Church, visit parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org.